Hello everyone and welcome back to series 10 of the Great Women Artists podcast. I am so excited to say that this series is supported by the Levitt Collection, a vast and varied art collection of which a major portion is dedicated to fantastic works by women artists. The Levitt Collection support for women in the arts is such that preparations are in full swing for the creation of the new museum, FAM, F-A-M-M, which will be opening in June 2024 in Mougins in the south of France. It will be the first major museum in mainland Europe dedicated to solely female artists and will exhibit a myriad of artworks all from the collection. Impressionist, surrealist, modern and contemporary art created by women from around the world will take pride of place in the Levitt's new museum, Female Artists of the Mujan Museum. But in the meantime, stay tuned by following at fam.mujan and don't miss the beautiful book Abstract Expressionists, The Women, published by Morel, which presents a selection of works from the collection alongside richly illustrated essays by scholars Ellen G. Landau and Joan M. Marta, all available now. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artist podcast is one of the most brilliant writers around today, Lauren Elkin. An American in London who has lived and spent extensive time in Paris, Liverpool, Tokyo, Venice and New York, as outlined in one of my favourite of her books, Flaneurs, which sees her trace cities through the eyes and steps of female writers and artists as the feminine flaneur, one who walks aimlessly, Elkin is brilliant at making her own a term or trait previously steeped in patriarchal meaning. The author of four books and the translator of others, including Simone de Beauvoir's unpublished novel, The Inseparables, Elkin has received numerous awards for her writing. She has been a cultural critic for the likes of the New York Times, Harper's, the London Review of Books, TLS, Freeze and more, holds a PhD in English, an MPhil in French, and is currently working on biographies on the likes of avant-garde tastemaker Gertrude Stein and artist Louise Bourgeois. But one of the reasons why we are speaking with Elkin today is because she has recently published a fantastic book, Art Monsters, which looks at a variety of female artists, from Elizabeth Vigée-Lebrun to Laura Knight, Betty Saar to Carolee Schneeman, Ava Hesse and Hannah Wilker, who have centred their practice around the body. Art Monsters is a fascinating insight into how women have broken from the historically weighted past and configured a language using a voice unique to them. Lauren Elkin, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Hi, Katie. I'm so happy to be here. Well, thank you so much <laughs> for coming on the podcast today. As a longtime fan of your writing, I have been so excited to do this podcast, mainly because I'm always amazed at how intimate your writing is when discussing women writers or artists. You allow us to see a side of them that feels personal, like we are right there with you retracing the steps that they took. 
you are so masterful at suddenly situating us in a space or time. Perhaps it's your literature background, because whenever I open a book of yours, my imagination runs wild with the scenes that you set for us. So I want to start by asking you what attracts you to writing about the lives of women artists and writers. Gosh, what indeed. There's obviously the work of feminist critics over the last 40, 50 years or so has been a question of bringing these women back into the story. Women who, for example, I've, I wrote my MPhil on Claude Cahoon, who is someone who literally disappeared from view after her death and was rediscovered because François Le Perlier came across a box of her negatives on the island of Jersey and looked at them and said, wow, these are really quite astonishing. And because of this one man's dogged work, she was rediscovered and became this massive surrealist queer icon that we know today. So I feel like there's so much work to be done. There are so many women who lived and walked in cities or made really radical art that we still don't know that much about. And when I was researching art monsters, I was really astonished because there were people I was writing about, like Maria Lasnig, who you've covered on your show, who is such a major figure to me, but people who are extremely well-read and they'd be like, oh, who are you working on now? And I'd say Maria Lasnig and they'd be like, who? But to the wider public, there still just isn't enough known about these people. And for me, as a writer, what I'm looking for is very specific details or anecdotes I think on your episode about Maria Losnig, her biographer said how she used to lie down on the floor and paint because she was trying to paint bodily experience, what it felt like to be in a body. The fact that that is something that we can believe that she would have done in order to make those works, I think says so much about who she was as a painter and how we can better understand the work that she made. Totally. I mean, I think what's also so interesting is that it's the fact that, like you say, there is so much to be discovered. So in a way, there is so much that feels contemporary with it because you're finding out this knowledge sometimes, you know, for the first time ever in a firsthand sort of way. And also, you're right, it's about bringing those stories to the mainstream. Yeah, completely. And I think we recreate these women in our own time. As you say, they become contemporary for us because that's the only way that we can understand them. And we can do as much archival work or, or tunneling back into the past to try to recreate their world as best we can, but we can only ever see with our own contemporary lens. But I think that's wonderful. I mean, Claude Cahoon would have meant something very different to André Breton in the 1930s than she does to us today as a kind of non-binary hero of, of queer art. I mean, we can read her work completely differently and that's okay. Totally. When was it that you first became interested in writing about women artists and writers and what led to this? I think it would have been while I was at Barnard. I was studying English literature and had done my junior year abroad in Paris and became enthralled by the concept of the flaneur. It is kind of a power trope of the city. The flaneur is kind of man about town, an idler who doesn't have anywhere in particular to be, who can just sort of look at the city, take in the spectacle of the city and let the city lead him where it will. And so I found that there was a lot of writing about the Flanners that said she couldn't exist. It was like all of these feminist critics would say, like, but was there a female version of this man about town? And they'd say, nope, because women weren't allowed to wander the cities the way that men were. But that was really the end of the 90s. That was really the beginning of my engagement with the lives of women. I mean, it's also so interesting that you don't just focus on artists, but you also focus on writers as well. I mean, someone like Virginia Woolf. I mean, are you just interested in the lives of these art makers in so many different forms because they were women? Yeah, because they had a particular kind of attitude, I guess. There's this amazing line that Woolf wrote in her diary when she was 
collecting the material that would become Three Guineas, the kind of newspaper articles and photographs and letters and pamphlets about the Spanish Civil War and about women in Britain and empire nationalism. But she collected all of this together and then wrote in her diary, I have collected enough powder to blow up St. Paul's. And that for me was a really important kind of moment in thinking about the book that I wanted to write. I wanted to concentrate on women who felt that they were blowing something up or who felt like they were gathering scraps of the culture and then were going to turn that against the culture itself. So yeah, at the very, very origin of this work, it was thinking about these women writers and artists and filmmakers as sort of the inheritors of scraps of culture and what they were going to do next with it was going to be very problematic for people who wanted the culture to remain the same. Totally, because I think what's really interesting is it's about sort of breaking from that single narrative, the sort of danger of the single story that we've been fed for so long. And actually, what I think your writing does so well is blow it up. And this is also allows for multiplicity, allows for so many different aspects of someone's life, so many different aspects of discovery as well. That was something that I was consciously thinking of. And something else that comes out of Wolf, she writes in A Room of One's Own that the sentences that we've inherited are not our sentences. They were sentences that were made by men for men's purposes. And that as women writers, we need to write in a language of our own. We need to break the sequence and break the sentence. So this is another reason why I was so on the lookout for scraps, scraps, orts and fragments, as Wolf puts it in Between the Acts. But yeah, when I was putting this book together, it was 2017. Trump had been inaugurated as president. So in fact, I still can't get my head around. Um, We'd marched in the streets. And then we were sort of dealing with the Muslim ban and all of the other horrible things he was doing at the border. And by the end of that year, it all kind of blew up in, in this great, amazing conflagration that was Me Too. And it felt so imperative for everyone to come forward and tell their story and be like, this is what happened to me. Oh, it happened to me too. And Twitter just blew up with women's stories. And I loved it. But because I'm like a skeptic at heart, there's part of me that was sitting there going like, okay, this is great. But what is all this storytelling doing? Is it a kind of consciousness raising thing? Like we're all feeling empowered or something by listening to the fact that we're not alone, and which is definitely the case. And in the case of Harvey Weinstein, like it actually led to criminal prosecution. But for me, as I was thinking about the shape of the story and what kinds of stories we were being encouraged to tell. And so I remember now I'm fast forwarding to 2018. I've given birth to my son and Christine Blasey Ford was testifying before the Senate to say what had happened to her when she was in high school, how Brett Kavanaugh had basically attacked her and molested her. And I remember thinking like, this isn't going to make a bit of difference. It's going to be Anita Hill all over again. But when it was Anita Hill's turn to go through all of this, people were like, well, she's a black woman. We don't believe the stories that black women tell. And it's like, well, now it's this upper middle class white woman. She's got a PhD. She's incredibly appealing, one would think, to people who don't believe black women's stories, but who need to be somehow convinced. I guess that means senators. And it didn't matter. They approved him off onto the Supreme Court. He went and Dobbs followed and everything else that we've seen. So, yeah, I remember feeling like this idea that we have to tell our stories might be a con to get people to tell stories that maybe they aren't 
comfortable telling or maybe storytelling verbally or on Twitter or something or before the Senate is not the best format for us to speak our truths. Maybe there's something about these visual forms, these non-linguistic forms that have some power in them that can break the sentence literally by, you know, getting rid of the sentence. It's it's so interesting. And I think something I'm thinking of so much just about how we explore any kind of story, thinking about the sort of root of it, who was the internet built for, who was a book built for, all these sort of different, I guess, structures, and how do we bend them sort of for our own? And like you say, actually have that sense of permanence as well. You quote this amazing line by Judy Chicago in your book, where you say, feminist art is like building sandcastles. One generation builds up a body of work and then another big wave comes and sweeps it all away and it must be made all over again. And, and you know, I'm a young woman and I am standing on the shoulders of all these people who have come before. And it's like, okay, we've seen these patterns emerge, emerge, emerge. How do we actually make this permanent? It's like we've got to build these new structures for our language. Yeah, completely. I don't know how we make them permanent. Um, <laughs> we've all got to work together, basically. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny because on one hand, this is something I think about a lot is like, what would happen to feminist art if there were no more sexism? But, but that's the goal. You know, it, it, it's, it it's not to sort of override any other artist, just yeah. to say, all of us exist here. Yeah. We all want to be part of this conversation. I mean, that's the thing. It's not about like someone having the solo. It's about like the orchestra working together, really. Yeah. But what would the orchestra play? I mean, it's, it's not I want to see that day come. Don't get me wrong. But, but but also I think what's so interesting is actually I do think that when we look at art history and the artists who have come before us, they have broken this ground. In a way, language mirrors how women artists have taken on patriarchal ways of making art. You know, a key aspect of your writing is thinking about the body. When we think about a body in art history, many of us might immediately think of an idealised nude in a painting. But what is interesting about women artists' approach is how their way of dealing with the body, as they've been granted more accessibility and power in the world, is how it's evolved to working with multiple mediums and how they've actually said, you know, I'm going to take charge of this subject that has been commodified and objectified and sexualized and idealized for centuries, and I'm going to make it my own and by using myself as the tool of the body. Yeah, I mean, that's it in a nutshell. I mean, just to come back to what we were just saying about sandcastles and structures, there's this great quote from Maggie Nelson's The Art of Cruelty that was another key moment for me as I was figuring out what this book was going to be and what I was trying to say about bodies. She writes, Is that one of the injustices of phallocentrism itself? That is, its suggestion that there's nothing else imaginable under the sun, not even a form of female aggression or rage or darkness, not shaped by or tethered to the male. I really wanted to know, like, can we think of a way of making art that is not a reaction to patriarchy, that's not like big fuck you to art history as we've inherited it? Is there a way to make work that feels like ours, feels like we're starting from our bodies and we're just exploring what they mean to us and what it means to live in a body, to tell the truth, as Wolf wrote, of our experiences as bodies? What would that work look like if it wasn't just in reaction against sexism? That was what drove the rest of the narrative, I think, from there. And how do you think women's bodies have been perceived for hundreds and thousands of years? Well, I think Bakhtin writes about the distinction between the classical body and the grotesque body, that the classical body is kind of smooth and has no openings and it's kind of perfect. And the grotesque body is the low body of like crowds and carnival. And it's the body that is embracing the fact of its bodiliness that's not worried about coming off a particular way. And I found as I started, you know, spending a lot of time around feminist art that 
the most interesting work was kind of challenging that binary between the classical and the grotesque, that there was a sense that we could cast out this classical aesthetic that we've inherited down over the centuries from, from ancient Greece, but also kind of refute this idea that the corollary to it was the grotesque. So the way that I ended up writing into that split was through sort of critiquing Julia Kristeva's theory of the abject, the fact that we are all embodied and when we encounter something that reminds us of the fact that those bodies are mortal or something just as simple as like the skin on a warmed up glass of milk can just trigger a kind of gag reflex and we have to cast it out. So that's period blood. That's everything that Bakhtin called the grotesque and that classical artists were trying to cover up or not include in their work. And so for a long time, the abject was a kind of source for feminist artists to say, I'm reclaiming my body, like I'm reclaiming my period blood as something that isn't disgusting. But, you know, the work that I found I was kind of put off by was work that was trying to seize on the moment of disgust with nothing after it. But what I thought was an example of work that kind of engaged with the abject but took it somewhere else was Carolee Schneeman's interior scroll, which ended up being like a central image that I would return to as I was writing. And the manifesto that she had scrawled on this scroll became my kind of manifesto. So Carolee Schneeman was an American artist who started out as a painter, but very quickly tired of the constraints of paint on canvas and started tearing and burning and shredding basically the canvas and the frame. And she eventually kind of moved from that painting as sculpture domain into the domain of performance. And so she staged a variety of group dances that involved dead animals. <laughs> Meat joy, it's called, um, and lots of like chicken blood and it's kind of joyous, grotesque mess. But because she was so troubled by the way that her work was received because of her gender, she started making more and more feminist work or work that was explicitly engaging with the ideas of the nascent feminist movement. So for this piece, Interior Scroll, she climbed up on a table in a gallery in East Hampton in 1975 and painted her body in mud. She's a painter, remember, and started reading aloud from a zine she had written called Cezanne. She was a great painter. And then eventually puts the zine down takes off this little dainty apron that she's wearing and begins to pull a scroll from her vagina, a scrolled up piece of paper, and then unravels it. And there's these amazing photographs of her, like standing with her legs spread, pulling out this scroll. And she starts to read what's on the scroll. Do you mind if I read from it? Because it's so amazing. Please. Okay. So it's a bit of text that's taken from her film Kitch's Last Meal, which she made around this period. It goes, I met a happy man, a structuralist filmmaker. He said, we are fond of you. You are charming. But don't ask us to look at your films. We cannot. There are certain films we cannot look at. The personal clutter, the persistence of feelings, the hand-touch sensibility, the diaristic indulgence, the painterly mess, the dense gestalt, the primitive techniques. And when I came across that, I was like, yes, this is it. This is exactly what I think all of this work is tending towards and how I was trying to articulate it. 
this hand touch sensibility, this painterly mess, like painterly mess, I feel like could stand in for a lot of the work of the 20th century. But when it's done by women, as opposed to someone like Jackson Pollock, it has a whole other meeting. It becomes incredibly bodily and expressive of what it is to be in a body rather than a big fuck you to, you know, patriarchal art aesthetics. Mm. Why do you think then, after sort of centuries and centuries of women's bodies being this certain way, why do you think they then turn to the body? Like, how do they sort of take agency over that? Right. Well, so for centuries and centuries, you know, their bodies were synonymous with beauty and subjects for art is, is the nude. You start out your training as an artist drawing an apple and then maybe move on to a vase. And then eventually when you are ready, it's time to draw a naked body. And so often those bodies were female and we know how that story goes. Women became models and muses and the subjects of art. There was one performance piece that Schneemann took part in in 1964. She was cast as Olympia. So she was meant to just lie there naked and be looked at. And that was part of what inspired her to make interior scrolls, she said later, that she wanted to be the depictive body, the subject of art, of beauty and the sublime. She wanted to take back her body and use it to speak with. An interior scroll is about, you know, asking, can the vagina speak? <laughs> can the vulva be an articulate space? And the answer, I think, is yes. <laughs> How was this then received? Well, very badly. <laughs> I mean, Schneemann has made no secret of the fact that she was told that her work was obscene, that it was pornographic, that it didn't belong in the art world. And she thinks that she didn't get a lot of commissions because of it, because she was written off. A lot of museums and galleries turned their backs on her. And it was only really until I would say the last like 15, 20 years or so that she started to have the recognition that she deserved. And so she won the Golden Lion for lifetime achievement a couple of years ago. But where were they in 75 when she was making the most forward thinking work of anyone else at that time? Totally. And I think also what's very interesting is when we think about who these critics are, they're not just men, but they're women as well. Well, exactly. Yeah. And that was one of Schneemann's targets in this little scroll manifesto. It starts out, as I said, I met a happy man, a structuralist filmmaker who said, don't ask us to look at your films. But it was actually a feminist art critic, Annette Michelson, who was teaching at NYU and who apparently said these exact phrases. But yeah, there's this real sense at that time in the 70s that this is not going to be work that's good for the feminist movement, that it's playing into the male gaze and, you know, profiting from the fact, and maybe they were to some extent, profiting from the fact that they were like beautiful, white female bodies, you know, like thin and muscular because Schneemann danced a lot and very much the kind of dominant idea of what a beautiful woman looked like. Schneemann fulfilled that function. So she got a lot of um, flack for that. I think it's so interesting. And actually, I was lucky enough to hear you speak at the London River Books bookshop the other day. And it was such a fascinating discussion, this discussion around subject and beauty and can women who are artists be beautiful and that sort of issue? Because in a way, I guess I'm from a generation which I just feel like, how could people immediately just criticise? Like th the main thing that we're all fighting for is space and power and equality and equity. And, you know, I just feel like it's so lazy of those critics to have just immediately sort of sidelined how well, you know, she got away with it because she was beautiful. Like, you know, she's playing into the male gaze. Why do we sort of almost assume that it's almost taking the role of the male spectator, you know, inherently in a way? Yeah, completely. And I think some of those 
critics who were very vocal in the 70s came back on those statements later. I mean, Lucy Lippard, who said similar things about Hannah Wilkie, has in the last decade or so said, maybe I was too hard on her. (laughs) Maybe the work was very good. But, you know, she says, I was in my combat boot period and I think she rubbed me the wrong way. But it shouldn't actually matter what she looked like or what Hannah Wilkie looked like for that matter. And I talk in my chapter on Wilkie about the fact that Wilkie had a nose job. She was a Jewish girl from New York and didn't like her nose, but she made the decision to change it, to bring it more in line with the kind of waspy, like dominant beauty ideal of the time. And she changed her name, Arlene, which sounds straight out of Brooklyn, to her middle name, which was Hannah, and also sounds a bit more, you know, waspy and can sort of pass in art world. It pinpoints her less to a specific time and place and makes her more like women's magazine beautiful. And so can you say a bit about Hannah Wilkie? So Hannah Wilkie is someone who I first came to through Chris Krause's I Love Dick. Chris in that book writes about how she was emboldened by what she refers to as female monsters who made work and just didn't give a fuck like how it was received. And so Hannah Wilkie was someone who actually started out as a sculptor and one of the first works that she became famous for, she made these sculptures for many, many years that were shaped like vulvas. But she would say, I'm not denying that they're vulvas, but they're also born of this gesture. And she would make this gesture with her hand of like, what can I do with a bit of clay or lint or chewing gum if I just take it in my hand and do this one gesture to it? What does it become? And so she became sort of synonymous with these vulva sculptures, which are so beautiful. If you look at them, some of them are ceramic and painted. She would show them all at the same time. And so it's like an army of vulvas, you know, looking at you. Vulvae is maybe the plural. (laughs) I Um, love that. (laughs) Army of vulvae. Uh, And then she integrated the vulva sculptures into another piece that she's really well known for, the SOS, where she turned it into a game. So it was an audience participation kind of performance game where she would distribute sticks of gum to the audience at her performances, have people chew it up and then take their chewed up gum and turn it into a vulva sculpture and then stick it all over her body and then had herself photographed. And as I've said before, all of these like model poses with her sunglasses. So that title, Starification, is meant to play on the word scarification She wanted to be referencing kind of African scarification rituals, but she also was referencing the fact that she was born a Jew in New York and I think 1941. And she's saying, if I had been born in Europe at that time, I would have been tattooed and scarred or maybe wouldn't have survived at all. So she's really asking us to think about layers and textures, not just of skin and chewing gum, but of meaning and of history and of women's self-presentation, like what kind of work goes into appearing the way we do when we pose for a camera. You know, we don't just wake up and smile. But, you know, Wilkie's trying to get us to think about the maidenness of the image, the fact that it's been constructed. It's not that she's just naturally so beautiful. It's so effortless. It's that work goes into it and that takes time and it takes its toll on us. Mm, I think that's extraordinary as well because also just reveals the deeper layers within these works as well and actually what we see so much sort of face value I guess we just sort of immediately almost discard because it is beautiful or it is on the surface or some way. Yeah so there's this really interesting Jamaican artist called Ebony G. Patterson whose work I saw at the Liverpool Biennial a couple of years ago and it's these amazing like detailed tapestries that are full of sequins and beading 
very colorful and really tactile. The ones that I saw in any case were meant to evoke the Sargasso Sea, the kind of sea around the Caribbean islands. And there's a ship and there may be some references to enslaved people being brought over. I mean, it is explicitly about enslavement and colonialism. And the artist, Ebony Patterson, was in conversation with an art critic called Laurie de Goyer. This is de Goyer who's saying, upon closer inspection, we can see that they also carry the weight of trauma and death. And Patterson says, for me, when I started making these tapestries, one of the problems I felt I was encountering is that people kind of sit in its prettiness and its buoyancy and its tactility and shine. But I wanted to find a way that somehow made that difficult to just rest in. And she got really interested in, in people saying it was really beautiful. And she'd be like, but is it beautiful? Like, is it beautiful if, you know, the outward shell of it, you know, as is the case for, say, Wilkie's body is beautiful, but what it's the content of it, what it's referencing, what it wants you to think about when you're contemplating its beauty is anything but beautiful. You know, that's what people, I think, have had a hard time dealing with when it comes to feminist work. Totally. And also just like, you know, would they say the same thing about a male artist or something? You know, what, what, why is that word beauty so synonymous with non-male beings? Whether you're talking about Hannah Wilkie's work, which is steeped in, you know, traumatic history, similarly with Ebony Patterson. It's just one of those things where it's, why do people almost immediately go for something that is pleasing to the eye? Why can we never see the sort of deep levels within that? Yeah, totally. And I think it's because of that, that an artist like Eva Hesse was so really just dedicated to making work that was not beautiful. I talk, for instance, about a piece that she did called Right After in 1969 that is made of this kind of tangle of fiber optic wire. And it catches the light a particular way. And it just looks shimmering and gorgeous when you see it kind of strung up, as I did go to see it. And she told Cindy Nemzer, who was interviewing her shortly before her untimely death, that she saw it and she was appalled and she was like, no, I messed with it too much and it went into the beauty zone and it became decorative. And for me, that's the only art sin. Like I, I want to do anything in my art except be decorative. And there, of course, she has this kind of history of aesthetics behind her that say that anything craft based or pretty or decorative, like a bit of lace or, you know, some ceramics or something, um, or patchwork quilt is a lesser art. It's not as serious as painting or sculpture. And she wanted to be taken seriously. So she did right after all over again and used just like rough rope to do it. And that's Untitled Rope Piece of 1970. And that one, I believe she was happy with it. But I mean, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because on the one hand, we're saying, can a work not be beautiful? Or does it have to be? Like, why do we have to sort of be so binary about it? Or why does the spectator have to be so binary about it? The fact that this behaviour that is perfectly acceptable in a man, this issue of beauty, I mean, you write about it throughout the whole book, but it's these things where why do feminist artists have to, as you write, you know, turn ugliness, abjection and roughness in order to be taken seriously? Why is there just this issue of, is it beautiful? Is it not beautiful? Why can't we see the deeper layers? It feels like there was just this constant sort of ping-ponging of debate around beauty. Mm. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, completely. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, completely. <laughs> and, you know, smoothness is a texture too. Like, it's not because something is like all rugged and rumpled that, you know, it, it is more meaningful somehow as if like meaning were trapped in, in those like grains. How do you then take on the subject of a body? I mean, you reference Jenny Savile painting the nude figure. She says, could I make a painting of a nude in my own voice? It's such a male-laden art, so historically laden. So I guess what happens when a woman, or how, how, how should a woman take on a, 
a subject that we've all so much seen steeped in patriarchy. Well, what's so cool about the Jenny Savile painting, I think, is how like layered and textured it is. It reminds me of this word that apparently Eva Hesse used to use. She told her friend, the artist Saul Lewitt, that she wanted her work to be ucky, not yucky. And that kind of idea, once I had thought of it, I started finding it everywhere. Like Cozy Fanny Tootie in an interview about her friend, the late artist Helen Chadwick, said she wanted her work to be like this. And she like moves her fingers together. Like she wants to be able to feel it. There needs to be some tactility to it. And so that for me came to feel like a maybe more important aesthetic quality of a work than is it beautiful or is it not beautiful mm. it's does it have textures you know texture can be smoothness it doesn't have to be you know something all like impasto like a, a jenny savile painting it can be kind of smooth and hairless as well but it, it seemed like a way to get away from getting entrapped in that like is she pretty is she not pretty is it beautiful is it not beautiful it's more like what does it tell us about the way that it was made and how does it give us information of what, about what it feels like to be in a body how does it help us be in our own bodies i mean that jenny savile painting i think is incredibly liberating in terms of the space that it's claiming for itself or jenny savile was claiming for herself both as an artist and a body that was originally how i came to write this book was out of flanus where I'm thinking very much about female bodies in urban space. And I wanted to think more generally about what it means, what it takes for a female writer or artist to claim space for her body to be. Mm. No, I think that's so interesting, this idea that actually the sort of freedom that is attached to that as well. I mean, I'd love to talk about your love of literature and how you sort of weave that into your writing on art. I think what your book Flanners really sort of opened up for me, I loved how, you know, whether it's the Virginia Woolf chapter walking around Bloomsbury and this idea that you almost felt like you were in her body. And you I was noticing buildings that I so just to explain to the audience, you're you're sort of tracing the steps of a lot of women artists and writers in a place that maybe meant a lot to them. And so there's this fantastic chapter on Virginia Woolf and Bloomsbury where obviously she lived. And I love how you really sort of open our mind up to what it must have been like to be a woman at that time and sort of almost using, again, where the, this idea about references and inspirations and muses. It's like, okay, well, where do women go for that? It's like Virginia Woolf used the streets of London. It's like when you're reading Mrs. Dalloway, it's like you're going through Piccadilly, you're going to Hatchards or to go completely the other side. I know another artist who you love is Louise Bourgeois. And recently I went to Louise Bourgeois' house in New York and going to that house was literally Literally like oh, this is her muse like I hate the word muse so much with a passion <laughs> uh, but like sort of inspiration or references yeah. where do we get those references from yeah totally I mean to take Louise Bourgeois as an example I've often wondered why she stayed in New York especially after her children were grown and her husband sadly had died why was she still there she just had built up a life and had this house and couldn't tear herself away from it I guess but she felt that exile from Paris and from France so keenly. So much of her work comes from that feeling of being displaced and of a longing for elsewhere. And I think that what you say is true about her home and also about her studio in Brooklyn. Apparently a lot of the work that she made, she was using kind of bits and pieces of detritus that she found. And it was an old sewing studio, so especially the kind of later sewing-based projects came out of. Um, but yeah, I'm someone who is very place-based. I know that there are people who don't care so much where they live, but I have 
three homes, I guess, the New York where I grew up, Paris where I still in my head live, and London where I'm temporarily. But yeah, I think that place speaks to us. It's like tuning into a particular frequency. And there's places where it's just static. And for me, there are places where it, it all kind of resolves and clarifies. And I feel like I'm in tune with myself and with where I am. And I feel very happy there. And, and I can work in those places, most importantly. Yeah, because I just found it so fascinating that you use the idea of place as a starting point or the subject, really. And also, when you're writing about Virginia Woolf or writers who are, were working over 100 years ago, Virginia Woolf walking the streets of Bloomsbury would have been one of the first times that women could actually just go out unchaperoned into the streets. Whenever I walk the streets, I sort of still feel this immense freedom. I'm sure lots of people of all different genders do, but even just personally, I love it. I sort of crave being in central London sometimes. I love walking the streets of like Piccadilly and German Street and that area for some reason. I just love it. Yeah, 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 completely. I would say I want to go walking with you and you can like share your love of German Street with me. But I, I honestly it's think it's a strange area that has like nothing to do with my life. Totally. But it, I think that's part of it. But it's I don't think that you can do it with anyone else. I think it's the kind of thing that you have to do on your own. And you have to find the places that do that for you where you're like, oh, God, there's this and oh, look at that. And oh, my God. And I'm trying to do that in London. I really am. But it is fascinating because when I was reading your book and then going out to the streets, I suddenly noticed so much more. I put my phone away. I didn't even have my headphones in. And it was like every single person who I walked past began to be some kind of character and I was sort of imagining their lives and also the way that, you know, when we think about the Piccadilly that, I don't know, Clarissa Dalloway walked on or something, it's the fact that that Piccadilly was probably so different to the Piccadilly that we walk on now. And likewise, I think this book is another kind of attempt to be attentive, to sort of attend to the surfaces of artworks instead of looking past the surface to think about who was this person and what was their life story, to look at more closely the art that they made that made them take all these risks and, and run the risks of being called monsters or like Carolee Schneeman brushed aside because her work was perceived to be too feminist. It's like, well, then we have to look at the work and see what the work has to tell us and what we have to learn from it. So walking, I guess, through a gallery in that way can be like walking through a city street. Totally. Lauren Elkin, thank you so much for coming oh, on the podcast thank you, today. As this is the Great Women Artist podcast, we do always ask our guests if there was a woman artist or writer working now or history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to her? Wow. You know, it's really hard to say because I know a little bit too much about Virginia Woolf and have read her diaries. So I don't think, you know, it would actually be very nice to meet her. <laughs> She tended to be very dismissive of young American Jewish students, people who research. I think possibly the person that I'd most like to hang out with is probably Helen Chadwick, who was just so funny and sassy and endlessly inventive and had this amazing idea to just collect garbage of all of the artists living in squats on her street in Hackney and turn that into a work of art in the ICA, like on the Mall, like just down the road from Buckingham Palace. I think that takes an enormous amount of cheek and I think I would really enjoy spending time with her. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Lauren Elkin, for coming sure, on the podcast today. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artist Podcast with the fantastic Lauren Elkin. I am really intrigued by her takes on the likes of Carolee Schneeman and Hannah Wilkie and urge you all to look up Art Monsters. It's a fantastic book. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardis Mlenich. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artist Podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Katie Hessel.